0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. I'm Mike Poynter. This is the second of two episodes based on this year's pop group meeting, a conference for people interested in population genetics which was hosted in St Andrews. While the scope of the meeting is broad, a common thread of several of the plenary talks was selection acting differently on the sexes and the causes and consequences of these differences. Within this, sexual antagonism is an important concept. Males and females share the majority of the genome, and they express many of the same traits, but for these shared traits, their optimal trait value is often different for each sex. So, a genetic variant can be beneficial in one sex, but detrimental in the opposite sex, as a result of different selection pressures acting on them. This results in what we call sexual conflict, and the conflict is thought to be resolved by the evolution of sexual dimorphism, where males and females have evolved the ability to express different phenotypes of a trait. So the strong phenotypic differences that we observe in many species between males and females in body size, color, weapon or ornament size, immune function and many more traits can result, at least in part, from sexually antagonistic evolution. Despite being quite widespread, sites in the genome that are evolving under sexual conflict can be difficult to study. Because the direction of the selective force acting on these genetic variants is switching back and forth in different generations, depending on whether it's in a male or in a female, the kind of patterns that we usually look for to identify regions of the genome under selection don't apply to sites where there's sexual conflict. So how do we find them? How common is sexual conflict in the genome? And what is the effect of this conflict in contemporary populations? My guest today, Mark Kirkpatrick, is very interested in these kinds of evolutionary questions and is utilising an amazing biological resource called the UK Biobank to study them in humans. The UK Biobank is an anonymised database containing information on half a million people and combines health and well-being, environmental and lifestyle data with genome sequences of all the participants. So it's easy to see how valuable the UK Biobank is for researchers like Mark interested in studying human genetics. At POP Group, Mark spoke about some of this work, so it was the perfect opportunity to talk to him about the conference and to find out a bit more about his research. Mark, great to have you here. Thanks for coming on. Would you start off by giving us an introduction to yourself and to your
1: work? Okay, sure. So uh, I'm Mark Rickpatrick. I'm a professor at uh, the University of Texas in Austin, Texas. And I work on evolutionary genetics. Um, For a long time, I was doing just mathematical modeling of population genetic problems. But in the last 10 years or so, we've pivoted. And a lot of our work now is analyzing genomic data to test some of our uh, ideas about certain problems having to do with mate choice and sexual selection and how chromosomes evolve and a bunch of other topics.
0: Great. Thank you. So what's prompted this conversation is that we were both just at the pop group meeting What's your relationship with POP Group?
1: That might be my favorite meeting in the whole world. Um, it's been a long time since I've been to a POP Group meeting, and I was just so happy to have the opportunity to go this time. Uh, it's just a wonderful combination of uh, topics that I love because it's focused around population genetics and then a really interesting group of people who uh, who attend. And so it's a, a great opportunity to reconnect with a lot of um, Old friends and to see a whole lot of new work that I find fascinating.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. It seems like it's a lot of people's favorite conference. I get that answer a lot to that question. So, this was your first one for a while, but it sounds like you
1: were a regular at some point in the past. Uh, yeah. And I'm not sure I could list them, but it's been a while since I've been to one, as I just said. The, um, I, the, the very first pop group meeting I went to, which would have been in the 1980s, I'm, Dating myself, obviously, but it really was one of the high points of my entire academic career. The first day of the meeting, I uh, grab my cafeteria tray at lunch and I wander over, sit down at a table, and I look up. And <laughs> who else is at the table? Uh, John Maynard Smith, Bill Hill, and Brian Charlesworth, you know, three of my absolute heroes in population genetics. And I, I thought to myself, you know if. Lightning comes down and kills me right now, it would be just fine because it's never going to get better than this. And that's in fact true. I don't think I ever had a a combination of people that I was sitting with that was quite so remarkable as that.
0: I think that marks you as a glass half full person as well, because it would be just as easy to see that situation as intimidating, if not terrifying.
1: (laughs) Well, it was pretty wonderful to tick off some of my heroes.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And was there anything that you particularly enjoyed about this year's POP group?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, Two things, actually. One was some terrific talks. Um, Kristen Bombley, who I'd not met before, talked about genome duplication. Her talk was great. Susan Johnston works on the evolution of sex differences and recombination. And that's a topic that our lab has also worked on. And um, her really, real deep dive into... um, getting at the basis for that is really a revelation. She gave a tremendous talk also. Um, Who else? Um, Kirsten Johansson, uh, who works on Literina has a long-term collaboration with Roger Butlin, uh, I followed their work for years, and I'd never—I've I've met Roger, but never met Kirsten. And so, seeing her give a talk was a real treat, and being able to finally meet her and uh, catch up with the latest on that story was was a was a high point for me as well. Yeah, for last
0: month's podcast, I spoke to Susan Johnston, and we dug into her talk and her work. Excellent. So, for anybody that missed that, that sounds like a recommendation from Mark to go back and listen to the previous episode. <laughs> I thought that. I'm not sure how intentional this was going in, but I thought that all the plenary talks dovetailed with each other
1: remarkably well. That would be Mike Ritchie being his usual marvelous uh, prescient self. I mean, Mike is a really old friend and it was a real treat to see him. Uh, it's always a treat to see him, but he put together such a great meeting and uh, yeah, hats off to him for all sorts of organizational magic.
0: <laughs> yeah. I particularly enjoyed his thing about the fossils right at the start. What was it? Millipede tracks.
1: (laughs) 300 million year old millipede tracks showing them fornicating or whatever it was.
0: (laughs) I was sad that I didn't get to go and see them, but I googled it and it wasn't as close to St. Andrew's as he made it look
1: in that picture. I I intend to go back and track that down. I think it's worth the trip.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it looked super cool. So I'd like to get into what you talked about in your plenary. Mike said that he was keen to invite you to speak because of the influence that your work has had on the kinds of things that he studies. So do you have a potted summary of your talk to hand?
1: (laughs) Um, No, I don't. If you'd like me to wing it, I can give it a try. Yeah, please go for it. We are fascinated in selection that acts differently on males and females And that's what, of course, results in the differences we see between the sexes in our own species and in other species, that is to say, sexual dimorphism. Um, That's an ongoing process. Well, we think it's an ongoing process. You could imagine that males and females have been optimized by natural selection to do different jobs for reproduction and for survival and so forth, and that males and females are Just what natural selection, sexual selection would favor. But we feel that there's uh, very good evidence that, in fact, there are constraints that prevent the sexes from evolving to what would be best for each of them. And so, what we've been diving into recently are uh, the data in the UK Biobank. We've developed a new approach that allows us to look for selection that's happening in the current generation. And what we see across the genome is a signal of selection acting to make males and females even more different than they already are. So that's an ongoing process that uh, is working in our own species, and we feel uh, there's very good evidence from other labs that it's also acting on other species in sort of analogous ways.
0: Fascinating. And the reason, as I understand it, that you have to take this single generation approach is that the usual signatures that we look for as evidence of selection just aren't
1: there with variation that's evolving under sexual antagonism, right? That's exactly right. Uh, The standard tools that have been developed for the last 25 years in molecular evolution detect signals in DNA variation that are due to selection that has acted over dozens or hundreds or even thousands of generations. The problem with um, detecting sexually antagonistic selection is that on autosomes, each generation, the autosomes are moving back and forth between males and females, and that erases any signal of selection that built up in the previous generations. So we have to um, detect a very, very weak signal that has developed only within the current generation. And what we find is that we have to give up on the goal that many people have of identifying individual genes That are targets of selection. But we find that by aggregating the signal across the entire genome, we can say a number of interesting things about how strong selection is, what the distribution of selection coefficients is that is leading to sexually antagonistic selection, what types of phenotypic traits are under sexually antagonistic selection, and a bunch of other uh, topics that are interesting to us.
0: Okay, cool. I hadn't quite retained the fact that because the signal in a single generation is so weak that you can't look at specific sites, but you have to aggregate the signal across the genome.
1: Right. We are getting a distribution of selection coefficients, and we, can, we estimate selection coefficients for every SNP in the genome, but many, many of those are false positives. So just by sampling alone, you'll get allele frequency differences between males and females that we would interpret as selection if we didn't know better. So what we do is we uh, estimate a distribution of selection coefficients for sexually antagonistic selection across the genome, and then we randomize the data and then recalculate that distribution. And what we find is that there's a strong enrichment for high values of the selection coefficients in the real data that we don't see when we randomize the data. So that's the, that's the signal, that's the smoking gun that we're looking for.
0: Great. So that's the human stuff. But from my notes on your talk, you also went into other species. Are those things that your lab is actively working on? Or were you highlighting examples that support the same kinds of conclusions in other organisms?
1: Uh, Yeah. And (laughs) I guess I should open up my own talk to to get the list of species. These are studies done by other other labs. Um, We have worked on sexually antagonistic selection acting on the sex chromosomes of fishes, but that's not something I talked about at pop group in St. Andrew's this year. Uh, And that's a whole different set of tools and somewhat different set of questions. But um, more generally, yeah, there are a number of labs that have got very strong evidence for sexually antagonistic selection acting in other species, including uh, insects and other vertebrates um, in addition to humans.
0: So what are the burning questions in this area that you're dying to know the answers
1: to? (laughs) Well, uh, I'm very excited that quite recently we were able to answer a question that I've been wondering for years. What we have found, as I just outlined, is that there are differences in the allele frequencies between males and females uh, in, in humans. And those are differences that are built up because Males that have alleles that are beneficial to females but detrimental to males die at a higher rate. Females that have alleles that are beneficial to males but detrimental to females also die at a higher rate. So what we're saying is that there's actual mortality that results from this type of selection. And one question that we've got is how much mortality is there? Our current estimate is that about one in a thousand deaths are the result of sexually antagonistic selection. So uh, I don't know whether you think that that's a big number or a small number. When I ask my friends what they think, half of them say it's a big number, half of them say it's a small number, (laughs) but it is what it is. And uh, the point being that there is a strongly, highly significant, greater than zero rate of mortality that is resulting from this kind of selection. Hmm.
0: I guess whether I think it's a big number or a small number depends quite a lot on what you mean by a death being attributable to sexually antagonistic selection.
1: Right, so that could be, uh, the the mortality could come in from any proximate source you could imagine, you know, a higher rate of uh, cardiac arrest or uh, it could actually be even prenatal. It could be um, mortality that's happening. Very early in the embryo in embryonic development, we don't know, but uh, we wouldn't necessarily as a matter of fact, we wouldn't actually be able to identify it as being the result of sexually antagonistic selection It's just increasing the risk of mortality in males and females as a result of being unlucky enough to have a bad combination of alleles that are adapted to the other sex.
0: okay, so in that case, I'm going to evade the question again and say that whether or not I think it's a big number might depend on how it compares to other amorphous causes of mortality, like being rich versus being poor, for example. Indeed. I suspect that one might be bigger.
1: Uh, Yes, and I would love to know that as well. I'd love to put it in the context of what uh, other mortality rates look like. To date, we have not been able to get data from publicly available sources that are comparable That are measured on the same scale as what we are doing. So I can't tell you that. But I'm pretty certain that um, the mortality rate that we're estimating for sexually antagonistic selection is less than it is for heart disease and uh, dementia and other leading causes of death. Um, Gunshots in the United States, (laughs) for example. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Uh, But it's probably greater than it is for um, the rate of people who die by impaling themselves on umbrellas. Uh, I will get back to you when we've got a more substantial or more concrete number, but um, for the moment, I can't can't really put it in context, unfortunately.
0: Okay. Well, that will be super interesting, as has been this whole conversation, Mark. Great to talk to you. And even though it's getting late here now and I'm off to the pub, I know that it's still early there in Texas. So have an enjoyable and productive day. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. That was Mark Kirkpatrick, professor at the University of Texas. Thank you very much again to Mark for his time and for being so upbeat and making me sound so much funnier than usual. Mark gave the final talk of this year's pop group meeting. If you're a student or a researcher interested in population genetics, then I highly recommend keeping an eye out for information on pop group 58, which will be held in January 2025 in Sheffield, supported as usual by the Genetics Society and Heredity. The podcast will be back next month, returning to the regular format, speaking to authors of a new Heredity paper. In the meantime, you can find the journal at nature.com forward slash hdy with cutting-edge science and information on how to submit your own papers for publication. I'm Mike Pointer. Thank you very much for listening.